Go ahead and turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. If you want to find it, just go to Matthew. That'll be easier. And then just go back three or four pages and you'll be there. Zechariah chapter 12. Let's begin with some prayer. Heavenly Father, what a a delight it is to come before Your Word. and We pray that You would. You would show us Christ. And that You would show us His glory and His beauty, God. That happens. And that happens through Your Word. This is why... You've brought everyone from Moses all the way to the Apostle John to write this book so you can reveal yourself to the nations. And here we are in a small way, assembled. And we pray that you would reveal yourself to us, God, that you would stir in us a longing for your Son. That can only happen through the movement of your Spirit. God, could you grant that to us these these very moments? Amen. Again, our, our text this morning is from Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, So that, when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where we're going to be going this morning, I hope you leave this service having your eyes fixed upon Christ. We want you to to look upon Christ, this glorious King. Christ in all of His glory. We want you to look upon Him whom you have pierced. Look upon Him and believe. Well, where do we see that? Okay, go back to the text here. Zechariah, you're going to see a pouring out of the Spirit, right? There's many people, many people who looked upon Christ and they did not believe. Looking upon Him actually hardened their hearts. So what do they need? Well, they need the pouring out of the Spirit. You see that in verse 10. And then finally, or in the middle there, we look upon whom? Well, we look upon the pierced Son, the, the one who is pierced. Also in verse 10, and then finally, in verse 10, we see, what are we to do? Well, if you have the Spirit and you look upon the Son who is pierced, it causes your heart to weep and to weep bitterly. So what do we want you to do during this time, throughout the rest of the week? Look upon the Son whom you have pierced and weep bitterly. So we have the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This, this object whom we're going to look at. The pierced Son. And then our reaction. What are we to do with this verse and with this text? 
So let's go back and we're going to get started here. The, the pouring out of the Spirit. Let's read the beginning. Well, let's just read the whole verse here. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, Zechariah, he's, he's just like you. He's not living in a vacuum, but he's, he's writing to an audience, and there's a setting that's going on around these, these prophecies. And for the Israelites, it's been a really, really bad hundred years or so. It's been terribly bad. The people have thrown themselves towards idolatry instead of worshiping the God who made the stars, they worship the stars. And though they're made in the image of God, they are defaming that image. By what are they doing? They're making an idol in the image of them so that they are God. You do the same thing. Don't be surprised. And this is what's going on. And so, Zechariah, he's calling out to them. He's calling to them to return to the Lord. You see this in chapter 1. The Lord is very angry with them. This begins as prophecy in chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is very angry with them, your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me. Return to me and I will return to you, declares the Lord. Turn from your evil ways. That's certainly applicable to us as well. Turn from your evil ways and from all your evil deeds. He was declaring that to the fathers. He's saying, we we told your fathers this same message that you are getting, that you now are getting. Return to the Lord. And did they listen? No. No, they didn't. They went off into exile. And they continued in their idolatry. And you think this 70 years of washing and purging and recycling them clean would bring them back into the land holy and righteous? No, the same message is still going on. Return to me. Return to me. See, the, the circumstances, they can change. Just like in your life. They can be in the land or they can be in exile. It doesn't matter. It's the heart. It's their heart. And they were finding, even though they can go in exile and then now come back into the land, this promised land, surely everything will be just fine. But no, no, it's not. It's just a, a reshuffling of everything around them and their hearts, they remain the same. And so he's calling out to them, turn from your sins. Don't you yourselves be cast out to the east, just like Adam and Eve being sent out to the east at the end of the garden. So he's calling them to return. Return to the Lord. But they can't do it. They just simply cannot do it. In and of themselves, you think, going in exile, seeing all that you have, your grandparents' home burned, your parents carried off, and you come back from the exile, you think hearing these stories would be enough, but no, it's not. You can't do it in and of yourselves. You, you know You see this in your own lives. How many years must you struggle with addiction before you come to the end and you go, I just can't do it. I can't do it by myself. 
I need someone else who can do it for me. I need someone to rule over me. I need a king. And I'm sick of exile. I want a true kingdom. And that's what Zechariah gives them. Adam did a marvelous job covering this in the Sunday school. You see, the first, you see, you look in chapter 6, you see that this new king is a priest and a king. In Adam, they were one and the same in the garden, but then they were separated after that. And so you see, the line of David is going to be the kings. Those are the kings. You see in Genesis 49, from the tribe of Judah, the one from whom the scepter shall not depart. Those are the kings. But then the tribe of Levi, those are the priests. Descendants of Aaron, those are the priests. They don't cross-pollinate. No, they don't. They're kosher. They keep separated. And so, you see this priest, and he has his filthy garments on with a picture of their sin, and it's he doesn't scrub himself. No, they're taken off, and he's given these new, glorious, radiant clothes. And this king is he's given this new royal crown. Remember, they just had governors. They didn't have kings because the king was still in Persia. They just had governors. But now they will have a king. And, and the priest line and the kingly line shall all come together. And you see it in chapter 6. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be with them both. And of course, of course this is pointing to Christ. You see it in Hebrews 7 that Christ is from the line of Melchizedek. He's a king. He's a king. He's, he's from born in Bethlehem. He's from the line of David. He is a true king, but he is the true eternal priest. Now he's made the great sacrifice and he rules and reigns over everything. Okay. So this, this one who will redeem us, he's the, he's the priest and he's the king, but how should he arrive? What do we what do we look for? How shall he come to us? We'll then go to chapter nine. Zechariah is amazing in how explicit he is pointing towards Christ. Chapter nine, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This in the midst of them coming back from exile and realizing, wait a minute, this still. To be honest, this still really sucks. Okay. We thought this was going to be amazing. But he's going, no, no, no. Rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Why are we going to do this? Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, this is Christ in the triumphal entry coming in to the spiritual kingdom, into Jerusalem. Okay, so we have this priest and king all in one, and he's going to come riding, not on his white horse, but on a humble donkey, coming in. And then go to the next, go down two verses, and you see, how shall he redeem his people? The priest makes sacrifices. What, what kind of sacrifice is he going to make? It says, for, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant, with you, the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Every paradigm you ever had is being shattered at this moment. A king on a donkey. The priest who is now making sacrifices. 
this isn't adding up. Everything has its own category. But now you see that, no, no, they don't have their own category. They're all pointing to this one glorious, glorious Son of God. You remember Christ in His upper room holding the cup. And He said, this is My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so we have this the priest and the, and the king all together and he comes riding and he makes a sacrifice. But what about his people then? There's the citizens of this glorious kingdom. How does he relate to them? How shall he overlook them? You see in chapter 10, verse 2, that the sheep, the people, are they, they wander like sheep. They're afflicted because they do not have a shepherd. If only, if only there was a good shepherd who could come and lead his people. Lead his people to the living waters. Lead his people out of sin. Lead them to righteousness. If only there was one. Go to John 10. It's quite explicit. I am. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He also says, my sheep, they hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Do you see the, the, the magnitude of what is going on? Of what Zechariah is holding before their people? Of how their only hope in their present circumstances of looking around and seeing a temple that's not quite done. Maybe it's getting done. We don't have walls yet. We could still be invaded. Their hope is in Christ. Can they see Him? No, not for several hundred more years. And here we sit in our own addictions, in our own sin, in our own pride, and we go, where's the hope? Where's the hope? Give me something tangible. Give it to me now. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. You just have to wait. It might not come right now. Be patient. Be very, very patient. Okay, so where's all this going then? Zechariah is leading it up again, just rehearsing the priest and the king all in the same, and he comes to dethrone the enemy and set up his glorious kingdom, and he's riding on a donkey, and he makes a sacrifice of his own blood through the blood of the covenant. And all of this is to take the lofty position again as a shepherd for his people that are afflicted and scattered, and he will gather them together and lead them to living waters. But where is this all ending? Chapter 14. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. Meaning, it's, it's, it's in a high point. It's the watershed point. Half's going this way, half's going that way. It's up on the hill. It's up on the mountain. Just like the Garden of Eden was up on the mountain. In it shall continue the summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all of the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and His name will be one. And so here you see this glorious kingdom with waters flowing out of it. And it shall be eternal, and there shall be no winter. Praise the Lord. 
this is the restoration of the garden. It's the garden that had living waters flowing out of this. It's the Jerusalem. You go there now, there is no water. None. There is no water in Jerusalem. There is no living waters flowing out of Jerusalem. No. But John puts it this way in Revelation 22. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, he writes, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. What a glorious, glorious picture this is. So we see this. He will, he will lead His people. He will guide them. He will redeem them. He will bring them into this glorious, glorious kingdom with the river of life now flowing once again. But there's one question. We find ourselves on the outside looking in, not on the inside looking out. And that's quite trouble. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Well, what if I'm not hearing my voice? Now they're hearing his voice. What shall we do? How do we enter this kingdom? Well, let's enter our text here this morning. It takes nothing less than the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon you to enter into the kingdom of God. That's your only hope. The people, they can't save themselves. They come back from exile. Well, they can't save themselves. Same thing with you. You need the water, the, the, the Holy Spirit being poured out on you. And you see, it's not being sprinkled or dotted or scattered or speckled. No, it's being poured out. And anything that it hits, it, it makes it come alive. And it transforms on the outside, on the inside. It completely it's a new life. It's a brand new life. And you can hear about the kingdom and this king all day long, but unless you have the Spirit poured out upon you, unless you have the Spirit working in your heart, you could care less. You might be intrigued, but it won't make any sense. I was, we were talking to one of you several weeks ago. You were saying, I've read the Scriptures forward to backwards, backward to forward, and it didn't make any sense until... Something happened, and I came alive, and it made sense. It's as if I was blind, and now we could see. It's as if I was dead, and now I'm alive. You need the Spirit, my friend, to pour out upon you. And this is a spirit of nothing less than, than grace and pleas for mercy. That you would receive this grace, this unmitigated love of God that you do not deserve. And with also with the withholding of what you do deserve in this pleas of mercy. You see uh, Isaiah going, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Dear God, we ask, could you withhold your judgment? We, we see you, the glorious King, and we see our own sin. God, could you withhold your judgment? Please? Where do we see this? Well, we see it obviously in the book of Acts. You can look to turn to chapter 2 if you want. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of, day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, suddenly, it happens out of the blue. I once was dead and now I was alive. It didn't make any sense. Now it makes sense. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound 
like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared on to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled. The, the, the Spirit being poured out, entirely filling. Not speckled, not sprinkled, no. Filled. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak into one another in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this is the glorious plan of God coming into the final stages. You see, before creation, God ordaining everything to happen. He, he's planning it all out. And then it's accomplished in His Son. It is finished. The work upon the cross, it is finished. And now He's back to the Father, interceding. And now, that's why the, the writers of the New Testament, Peter, Paul, they, they write, we are in, John, we are in these last days. Well, yeah, now we're in the age of the Spirit. Now this, this glorious work is now being applied. It was planned, it was accomplished through Christ. Now it's being applied through the Spirit, being poured out on Him, on you. So what do you do? Pray. Desperately. Desperately pray that the Spirit would be poured out on you. The, the Spirit of grace that you would be able to taste and drink of this glorious love of God and these pleas of mercy that God would not rain on you the judgment that you deserve. Pray to God. You can't fake it. Pray to God that He would pour out His Spirit on you. So let's keep going. And we're going to see why. Why? Why does He pour out the Spirit? Back to, obviously, verse 10. And I will pour out My Spirit in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in a Spirit, a Spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. He will pour that, he'll pour that out on them. Why? Grammar matters. So that. So that. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So you see, the, the, the Spirit is poured out for a reason. It has a purpose. So it's poured out so that when we are in the state of looking at the Son, that we will weep bitterly. That's why the Spirit is poured out. And we, when we, we read these words, when they look on me, on Him whom they have pierced, obviously your minds are brought to the Gospels. When you're thinking about looking upon Him and, and the one who is pierced. First, so you'd see the disciples first like running away in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're seeing Him, but they're, it's over their shoulders as they're running away from Him. Right? And then the, the soldiers, they... They take him, and they were the temple guard, they bring him to Caiaphas and, and then his father-in-law, Ananias, and they look on him and they see nothing, nothing good. Then the Roman soldiers have them, and they begin to look on him. They look on him, but without the Spirit. And what do they do? They mock him. They strip him and they put on a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him, mocking, going, Hail, hail, King of the Jews. Then they take his scepter, the reed, and they beat him on the head. with it. 
pilot looks at him even more. Nothing to see here. And the crowds, they look on him as well. They look on the one whom they pierced. And they're mocking him. Pierced in his hands. Pierced in his side. Pierced in his feet. And I know some of you, if not all of you, are thinking, well, something's terrible. Good thing I wasn't there. Because if I would have seen this great injustice, I would have ruined the whole plan of redemption by taking him off the cross all by myself. I would have never allowed that to happen. Well, you're thinking, what? No, it wasn't me. I wasn't there. What have I done? I'm actually quite religious. I'm a good guy. To my, to my standards, I'm a good guy. And it fluctuates, obviously. Well, that's the same thing that the great Apostle Paul would have been thinking. As he's riding on his donkey, going to Damascus, here he is, this righteous man, the Hebrew of all Hebrews, the Jews of all Jews, and he's going and he's thinking to himself. No, he's never touched Christ. He's, he's never thrown a stone at him. Christ, Paul didn't thrust the spear in his side. But as he's riding, he hears this, this booming voice coming out and this blinding light and he's blinded and he hears this voice coming out. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't even know it. But it was Christ. It was Christ whom he was Persecuting. It was Christ whom he was stoning. It was Christ who he was piercing. It was Christ who he nailed to the cross. And you, my friend, are in the same condition as Paul. You may think that you, you have nothing to do with this Jesus character or Christianity or religion. And you can be just riding along just as Paul was on his way up to Damascus. You want nothing to do with it. And you want nothing to do with it, but my friends, it has everything to do with you. And you know it. Because you, you are abundantly aware, remember, your, your sin. Even your, your own standards of morality, you threw that out the window a long time ago. A long time ago. I've heard your stories. Believe me. We know. A long time ago, that got thrown out the window. But what makes it worse is that, again, you're made in the image of God, so it's not your own standard of morality, it's God's own standard of morality. And we know that we have certainly fallen short of that as well. So we, we want these good works, and we look to good works, and we are right to look to good works. This is why every religion is built around good works. Even atheists, they pride themselves in how good they are. When you're right to look to good works, you're an absolute fool to look to your own good works, though. Look to the works of Christ. It's these works of Christ through which you will be redeemed. So one of the commentators, he, he writes, we have all lifted Him up on the cross. We have transfixed 
him with the nails to with his hands and his feet. We are the ones who pierce him in the side. We are the ones who thrust the spear for it is. If man had not sinned, if you had not sinned, the son of God would not have endured any torment. So let me see your eyes. Put everything down. Let me see your eyes right now. You are the one. You are the one who pierced Christ. It is your sin that did it. You know it. You know it. But He's calling to you right now. He's calling to you. Just like He was, just like he was calling out to Paul to look at Him. To look upon Him while you still have a chance. And when you do, you'll realize that it's not you who have been examining Him in all of your searches of religion and everything else. It's not you that are examining Him. But as He looks down upon you from the cross, you realize that it is Him who is examining you. This very morning, my friends, in the midst of all this chaos and everything going on, look to Christ. Look to Christ and see Him upon the cross. You, you're just being, you'll be delaying the inevitable. We know that we will all be looking upon Him. You, you see it in Revelation chapter 1, John writes, Behold, He is coming with the clouds in every eye, your eye, everybody else, your parents' eye, your children's eye, your neighbor's eye, that your preacher shares the gospel with. Their eyes will see Him, even those who pierced Him, you. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This is basically Zechariah chapter 12, John writing. Everyone, everyone will look upon the Son whom they have pierced. Do it now. Do it now. Or you still have a chance. And pray. If you don't care about this, pray. And pray that you have the Spirit pouring out upon you, that you would, your affections would be stirred, that you would care to look upon Christ whom you pierced. So, we see that we're nearly left hanging. So we, we see the, the Spirit being poured on us while we're in the condition of looking upon the cross. But what should we do? What should we do? Let's go through the verse again. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a Spirit a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they looked upon me, on him whom they have pierced, what shall we do? What shall we do? They shall mourn. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is the natural outcome of you looking looking upon the cross, is that you mourn as one mourns for, an only ch- uh, mourns for a child and weep bitterly. Over the firstborn. You were mourning. Not as, not as a nation that goes into exile, or not as, not the pain of having all that you had being taken away by someone of the army, but no. It's the uncompromising, relentless, suppressing mourning that only happens when you lose a child. The, the root of this word is literally just rip your hair out and to beat your chest. That's mourning. Or this bitter wailing. 
when grief comes and it leaves you with nothing else, and in your solitude you are wailing and weeping, and there's nothing coming out but just bitterness from the depths of your soul. That, my friend, is the work of the Spirit. Because we will look over him and we will weep over him as a child and as a firstborn because as well, you hear, what does God say of him? You see him in his baptism and then the Mount of Transfiguration. What does he say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the Son of God. So what does this look like? We, we prayed, right? We prayed, God, pour your Spirit on us. What does it look like? Well, they, they, in Acts, if you still have your finger there, in Acts chapter 2, they, they receive the Spirit and they begin preaching. They're praying and they're preaching. They have the best programs? No, they had none, but they had the bold proclamation of the Word and they had the Spirit. It's pretty good. It'll work. And in, in Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, remember, God the Father who plans everything out, the Son who is accomplishing it, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified, Peter says. The what? I wasn't there. Am I the one that drove the nails? Am I the one that thrust the spear? Yes. Yes. The Bible says you were. And then he finishes out the sermon. Down in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you, not others, not the Roman soldiers, nobody else, you, whom you crucified, you must wrestle with this and come to terms with it. You can't dodge it. You can't. You must wrestle with this truth. So then what do they do? How do they respond? What shall we do? Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were the ones who did the piercing, but now they're the ones who were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, Brothers, what must we do to be saved? What? What must we do? And just like you, my friends, they realize they are completely lost without this Christ, whom they crucified. They're, they have no hope of it. They didn't justify it away. No, they just said, oh My God, my God, it's true. What must I do? They didn't point to any works. No. Repent. It's the work of the Spirit. What do you do? You do the work of the Spirit. You repent. You repent and be baptized. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit being poured out on them is that it's a complete and total transformation that they are the ones who crucified Christ. And now they are the ones who have this spear driven in them. They're the ones whose hearts were hard and demanded death. And now they are there crying and desperate for life. 
They are the ones who held the hammer nailed in the nails. And now these same hands are wiping away the tears as the Spirit moves in them. This is the work of the Spirit. But it's not just for them, it's for you. Remember in chapter 1 of Zechariah, how he's calling to them, return to me, return to me, thus says the Lord, return to me. Now there's some good about Return to me. And either, either they did it, as you see in Acts, or they don't, and they go into exile. Return to me, and that same call is going out to you right now. What will you do? What will you do? I pray that the Spirit would work in you to look upon the Son whom you have crucified and believe in Him. Believe in Him that through His death you might finally have life. Let us pray. Dear God, that is uh, certainly us. Our lives of betrayal, addiction, adultery, and hatred. Goes on and on and on. And there we are with the crowds crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And we are the ones who crucified you with our own sin. <laughs> For some reason, you have sought us as a husband seeks a bride and you have won us, God. And we pray that you would work in us, pour out your spirit upon us, God. And that we would have this complete transformation that can only happen by your grace and through these pleas of mercy. God, please have mercy upon us. Amen.